This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to another Sunday night live radio show talking all about Northwest history. We think, we haven't checked completely, but we think we're the only live radio show anywhere in the Pacific Northwest, the old Oregon country, talking about Northwest history. I'm your producer and host, Felix Bunnell. We've got an action-packed hour ahead of us. Um, we're going to have Knut Berger. Uh, he's KCTS's Mossback. He writes for Crosscut. He's going to be joining us in just a moment to talk about a piece he published this week in... Um, uh, Crosscut about uh, the influence of a couple of Nazi spies in Seattle in the late 1930s, right before World War II. A just recently uncovered story that's pretty amazing, pretty mind blowing. Um, then, as we always do, around the middle of the hour, we'll play some vintage audio. For those of you who are uh, keeping track of the radio calendar, you'll know that this past Friday, September 23rd, was the 34th anniversary of when late great station KJET which Mike Fuller does a great job memorializing every Saturday night here on Space 101. That's the day that KJET went off the air. So I've got some special vintage audio um, that we're going to play from that. And I've got um, just some, some little surprises related to the KJET anniversary. And then for the second half of the show, um, John Mackey and John Atkin. Uh, the, John Mackey's with the Vancouver Sun. John Atkin's a tour guide up there and a historian in the Terminal City. We're going to be talking about neon in Vancouver. Vancouver, B.C. is known for its amazing neon and you know, they've, uh, some signs are still there along Hastings. Some have gone away, but we'll sort of cover all things uh, noble gas, neon signage in the second half of the show. Um, quick note, it's September 25th. Uh, it's a weird date in Seattle history. There's four big things that happened um, on this specific date in Seattle history, going back to the very beginning of uh, sort of non-indigenous uh, pioneer history. It was this day, September 25th, 1851, when the advance party, David Denny and two other guys, landed at what's now Alki and thought, this is a good place to, to build a city. Then, fast forward to September 25th, 1968, that incredible program. It's not really historically accurate. It's not really a documentary, but Here Come the Brides, which Time Magazine described as a group of uh, sex-starved lumberjacks in Civil War-era Seattle. That premiered on this night, 1968. Then, September 25th, 1981, the very last episode of the J.P. Patches program aired on Cairo TV. It was a Friday uh, he'd been off the air for a while. He'd been only doing Saturdays, and they brought him back for kind of a last gasp of a weekday show on this day 41 years ago. And then 14 years ago, September 25th, 2008, Washington Mutual Bank failed, um, the biggest bank failure in the history of the United States of America, based right here in the great city of Seattle and in the great Northwest. <clears throat> Cascade History, Cascade of History is a show uh, we're on for the next hour. Basic premise is we talk about all things related to uh, past, present, and especially the past. <laughs> no, no, that's not how it is. Uh, past, no, future, present, and especially the past of the Pacific Northwest, the old Oregon country, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. 
we'll, we'll cover all the bases. We're going to be doing this all fall, who knows, maybe into next year as well, spending an hour each week talking to people with interesting stories to tell about things that have happened here in the Northwest because, <clears throat> excuse me, I think Sunday night's a great time to talk about local history. The fact I can sit here in this historic Magnuson Park headquarters of Space 101.1 FM um, and talk on the phone to interesting people all around the Northwest who are, they're tucked into their houses or their apartments, they're all comfortable. I'm, I'm the one who drove into the station. I'm fine by me, I'm happy to do it. Um, but it gives us a chance to talk about history in a perfect setting, a nice kind of a quiet Sunday night. I think the Mariners lost today, the Seahawks lost today, the smoke's moving back in from the wildfires. So, you know, it's Sunday night, so it's a great excuse to talk about history. So I'm going to bring on our first guest. It's Knute Berger. Let's see if we can get him on the phone here. I'm still figuring out how this phone system works. All right. Knute, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Oh, terrific. Thank you so much for joining Good. us on Cascade of History. I was, uh, I don't, now, while you were on hold, were you able to hear all the, um, the witty repartee between myself and, and me? <laughs> I heard no witty repartee. Okay, good. All right, so well. Total silence. <laughs> well, hopefully our, our listeners out there in Radioland were able to hear more of the witty repartee. Um, anyway, um, I was explaining before we, uh, you joined us here that um, you have, you know, you're, you do Mossbacks Northwest on KCTS. You write for Crosscut, and this piece you've just published, I think it's related to the uh, PBS Ken Burns program about um, America's inability to respond to the Nazis 80 years ago. But you ended up, you found some incredible information about, in fact, Nazi spies actually visited Seattle in the late 1930s. Yeah, you know, if, uh, back in 2015, 2016, I did a whole series on, um, I called it Real Nazis of the Northwest. You know, we think <laughs> about the neo-Nazis. But there were actual representatives of the Third Reich who were in the Northwest as consular officials uh, or who, um, you know, visited. And when I was researching that series, I came across um, an, an account of a, a German uh, lawyer who visited Seattle with a companion, and ostensibly they were on a... Uh, they were headed to, from Seattle to Alaska. They'd been on a cross-country trip across North America, United States, Canada, Cuba, Mexico. And, um, and they actually gave, uh, uh, the main guy was named George Herbert Melhorn, and he gave a brief interview in the Seattle Times. Somebody must have tipped the Times <laughs> off that there were some interesting Germans down at the Ben Franklin Hotel. <laughs> and uh, he didn't really say much. It, it, it all sounds very Casablanca right now. It all sounds very much like everyone goes to Rick's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and uh, while they were here in town, they were meeting with the members of the German-American community and the, and the German-American business roundtable. They were um, taken out and sailing on Lake Washington. They went to Mount Rainier. And... Um, I was very curious about this, and uh, because I, I was like, "Well, why, you know, why was this guy here?" It didn't. It just didn't ring true that it was a, a, a tourism thing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, I actually came across this because um, there was a, a local America German American named Hans Otto Gisa who was uh, very well known in the in the history of skiing and ski mountaineering here. He was a yachtsman, 
and he he was uh, he did work for the German consul and was also an early supporter of Hitler, and um, and there were some controversies within the German American community about whether you know to put pictures of Hitler up in the German club, <laughs> things like that. Uh, well, that's good. So that's in there. I guess that reflects well on them that there was controversy. There was controversy. <laughs> okay. no, yeah, most. I mean, most people in the German American they were very afraid. I mean, there's several things going on. One was, um, you know, some some were very anti-Hitler, some were not. Some were like, well, it's, you know, kind of a fresh breath of fresh air, you know. That's <laughs> terrible. And, uh, uh. Um, <clears throat> but there was also a lot of fear that there would be anti-German sentiments, such as we saw during World War One, where, you know, there was a lot of anti-German sentiment and uh, arrests and even German language was banned in some places. Mm. Um, and so I think there was, you know, also fear that, that this would be seen as very negative. Well, Hans Otto Giese, um, after Pearl Harbor, was um, detained by the government. And eventually he was, he was banned from the West Coast, um, but put on trial. And they wanted to take his citizenship away. And they did this with a number of... Germans across the country who they suspected had uh, been disloyal and, and had signed their citizenship papers uh, falsely saying that they were loyal to the United States. Most of them did not lose their citizenship. Hans Otto Giese did not lose his citizenship, but his trial uh, was here in the Northwest in federal court. He was, um, and uh, I went to the Federal Records Center. And uh, out in the, <clears throat> near Magnuson Park, and found a file on the trial, and I, I couldn't find the transcript, but I did find the FBI interview with Gisa. And in in that, if I'm remembering correctly, um, he is where I first heard about this visit from this guy from from Germany, hmm. and that that caught my attention. And then I found some references to it in in the newspaper in 1943. And so I, I looked up this Melhorn guy and found out, well, he was an, he was a fairly high-ranking SS colonel. Um, and he, it turns out that he was um, one of the founders, the SS security service called the SA, um, which eventually took over all the intelligence gathering domestic and foreign in mm. Nazi Germany. He was one of the um, chief organizers of it, actually ran the main office in Berlin in the mid-30s. And, and then he, <clears throat> he was actually sent by Heinrich Himmler on a one-year tour of North America to sort of gather intelligence and, and kind of report back, like, well, what's and he was specifically instructed to look at, quote, the, the Jewish problem in the United States, the Negro problem in the United States, I'm putting these in quotes, yeah. and other things. And so he was here to, to pump the local German-American community and get this sort of temperature. And was that as a, as a way of figuring out, like, what kind of propaganda to use once war comes or find ways to sort of find weaknesses in the United States in terms of, like, uh, sort of selling the German war effort on the on other parts of the world, or selling the German war effort to America. Did, did Germany think that we might be on their side at some point in, in the late thirties? Yeah, 30s? I think so. I think. I mean, I think 
they wanted to, they wanted to get a picture of, uh, you know how, how you know Melhorn clearly came away with the impression that every American was anti-Semitic. Huh. He even said that in in his report, the part uh, pertaining to Seattle, and um, so I think they hoped to tap into that. They also hoped to see whether German Americans would be willing to relocate to Germany or to eventually to annex territory, um, because the, you know Hitler's idea was to expand Germany and to expand it, you know, into Poland and into Russia and Ukraine and huh. uh, various places, and that the locals would be executed and uh, or moved away and and replaced by uh, people of German uh, ancestry. Wow. And so I think I think I think there were kind of a whole host of things. Uh, the other was, I think, to make contacts to see if there were sympathetic individuals in these uh, different cities. And so just since 2015, 2016, I've just sort of been gathering string. And then about a year ago, I uh, got in touch with the archives of the uh, U.S. Uh, National uh, Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and in looking, I found uh, they had some files uh, relating to Melhorn. Wow. And I was able to get copies of them, and one, one of the files, maybe 300 pages, uh, two or three hundred pages. Uh, it's in German, and it is his report and letters that he wrote back to his headquarters at the SS of his trip. Wow! And um, you know, I want to get the whole thing translated so I can read, you know, everything. Yeah. But uh, there was a portion marked Seattle, and and so um, I was able to find out what his impressions were here and, and what really stands out from besides you know the the one the, there wasn't a, they didn't they didn't go to ben paris and get sung down by people singing the marseillaise did they while they were singing their german army song there was nothing like that this is all pre-war right um what, what were their findings about seattle that really stuck out for you well there were several things that he commented on in the comments one was he said gee this part of the country is very young it has pioneering spirit and people are very open here. You know, it doesn't, basically, all I have to do is ask one or two questions and they spill their guts <laughs> about what they think and what, you know, what their views are. So he found the people here very, uh, and I think he described them as, you know, very good, very decent people that, you know, we, you know, we only talk to, you know, very, very good people. And um, so I think that he, was struck by several things. One was he realized that there was a growing anti-German sentiment um, because of the treatment of Jews in Germany, and he referred to uh, the Kurfürstendamm um, riots in 1935, which were essentially a, a prelude to Kristallnacht, which was you know brown shirts all over Germany attacking Jews and closing their businesses and beating them and killing them, and you know, it was a terrible thing. And in 1935, this happened on the main shopping street in Berlin. It shocked the world. It made, you know, front-page headlines. And so he found that people here were, were concerned. Hmm. Um, and uh, and he was, I think he was surprised by that, you know, sort of like, well, gee, these, 
Americans are all. He actually says, I'm reminded that a possible defense enabled by the secret anti-Semitism of every American has been made more difficult, especially in recent times, by the fact that even well-meaning Americans no longer believe the assurances about the actual conditions in Germany. Wow. Um, and, and apparently their response to this, um, and he doesn't name names, but the basic opinion was, um, you know, you, you guys should tone it down. <laughs> you, know, you Nazis ought to, you know, be cool and inconspicuous. Oh, jeez. Wow. In terms of how you treat the Jews. So, you know, nobody was saying, ooh, you know. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, and that, that that I think is sort of a shocking thing. Do we know the specific people he talked to in Seattle? And do any, any of them, like, ring a bell in terms of other civic, civic activities or anything like that? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, Hans Soto Giesa was one of them, yeah. and um, and then the other uh, named, um, who's you know was on the record of having met um, met Melhorn, was uh, Dr. Carl Lied, who was um, prominent member of the American German community, um, and um, also one of the founders of Swedish Hospital, mm-hmm. and he was very much uh, you know a society doctor. Um, and in in 1943, when he was testifying at, at Hansado Gies's trial, he mentioned that uh, not only had he entertained um, Bellhorn here, but had actually in 1939, we don't know when, but in 1939, he mentioned he had visited Melhorn at Gestapo headquarters wow. <laughs> in Berlin, and they'd had, quote, a pleasant chat. Wow. It's... Um, you know, if you're at Gestapo headquarters in 1939, it's, you're pretty darn clear who you're meeting with. Yeah, it's amazing because, you know, so much about World War II history around here is is so vivid because of the work of a place like like the group like Densho that does all the oral histories with yeah. you know, Japanese Americans and other Japanese people of Japanese descent who were incarcerated during the war because they were Japanese um, or of Japanese ancestry even. But the, the German picture of World War II in terms of uh, other than sort of newsreels of Nazis and, you know, people obviously, you know, wanting to, you know, like the uh, interferer's face kind of Hitler propaganda stuff. This makes it feel really, um, really real and really kind of sc- ominous. Do, do we know, were there other groups of German spies coming through Seattle in the same time or was this the only one as far as we know? Well, <clears throat> no, there, there, there were others in the area. There, there was... Um, there, we do know, for example, since Canada went to war at the same time as Great Britain, yeah. that there was intelligence information being smuggled from Canada and given to, uh, reportedly given to the um, consul here in Seattle. Um, and the consul here in Seattle, the, the, the first German consul of the war period was an old hangover from, you know, the Kaiser Wilhelm kind <laughs> of, you know, he, he he fought in World War One and was sort of a gentleman, but he you know he he did a lot of very effective propaganda for the Nazis here, speaking at colleges and and kind of delivering this message that you know the Jews had nothing to worry about Germany. We were these laws were passing her for their protection and that kind of thing. But he got replaced by a guy named Gustav Reichel, who was a real you know, true believer Nazi, and apparently there was some, um, uh, you know, some uh, spy information that was being 
transferred from British Columbia down to Seattle for transmission through, you know, diplomatic channels. Um, We know that um, the the sort of main headquarters for the the Third Reich's um, diplomatic efforts on the West Coast, uh, they had a powerful presence in Los Angeles where their main job was trying to control the film community and prevent them from making anything that was anti-German or pro, <laughs> you know, pro-Jewish and, and whatnot. And, and of course, they had this economic threat, which was Germany was a huge market for many of the big Hollywood studios. But the main center was San Francisco, the consul there, because of its connections with uh, the Pacific. Huh. And so uh, we do know um, in the post-war period that the plans for the fortifications of Pearl Harbor were smuggled to San Francisco and transmitted from there back east. Um, wow. And, and so, you know, there was, uh, there was a lot of hanky-panky. The, the last of the Nazi-era consuls in San Francisco was a guy named Fritz Wiedemann, who was, um, had served with Hitler in World War One. He was... Um, kind of had been a mentor to him, and Hitler had given him a job as adjutant. And uh, he was involved in a whole number of things, and he eventually was appointed as consul general in San Francisco. And he really liked Seattle, and so (laughs) he would come up here. I don't know whether he was visiting his mistress or what, but... Contact with the newspapers, whether that the case of the photograph later in the in in the in this time period, or this uh, interview with the guy in in the late 30s. Do I mean? Do we know was the FBI aware of this? Did the federal government figure this out, or were they was the Seattle Times or any of the newspapers funneling information to the federal government when there was a an, an episode like this that looked sort of mildly suspicious? Yeah. Someone who knows what's going on. You know, I I there was after the war, the Times did a bunch of reporting on. Uh, espionage and what the FBI did here during the war. There are a number of uh, articles in the paper that sort of cover these untold stories, you Hmm. know. And this is um, off the top of my head. It's kind of 1946, 47. It was like kind of now it could be told. And and of course, a lot of it was really general. And um, the, the, um, yeah, I mean, I think the Seattle Times editorially was fairly, they were, they joined in the, they kind of accepted the German line that there was, they actually ran an editorial saying there is no oppression of Jews in Germany and oh, there geez. never will be any. Oh man. But, you know, by, by 19, you know, 33, 34, they began being more skeptical about Hitler. Um, and, 
uh, but I think they had ties in the German-American community. And my hunch is that uh, somebody in the German-American community tipped them off to the fact that these guys were in town. And, um, and they just went down and did kind of a powder puff interview. They didn't get much out of them. But from what I could tell, looking, um, searching in newspaper databases, it was the only interview in that entire year. You know, they, they got a scoop, you know. They got them. It, 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 just, it, it just didn't deliver much. Wow. And so when, when I learned about that KCTS and PBS, uh, you know, we're going to be airing the new Ken Burns series, The U.S. and the Holocaust, yeah. I thought um, I had done a bunch of research on Melhorn after he was in Seattle. And so he ended up being the kind of number three guy in Western Poland, uh, which had been annexed to Germany. It wasn't just occupied, but it was, you know, literally became part of Germany. And he was in charge of uh, interior affairs and, uh, you know, coordinating with the, the Gestapo and the SS and everything. And he, and he, in his territory, was set up the very first stationary death camp. Oh, jeez. Uh, it's called Hemno, and spelled, it looks like Chelno. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hemno. And um, they were a place where these mobile gas wagons that they would put people in the back and kill them with uh, carbon monoxide. Um, they, they took over an estate, and um, they just, um, you know, would round up um, Jews in the ghettos and whatnot, and they would uh, bring them to this place, put them in the trucks, kill them, mm. and bury them. And, um, you know, at Helmno, uh, you know, by the end of 1944, uh, you know, we'd kill somewhere between 250 and 300,000 um, people. And we know Melhorn was involved because he was actually involved in a cover-up of this place. Um, the Germans were, at this point, were keeping the extermination program secret. And this, this extermination program was early. It was before, this is, in fact, the first group that was executed there uh, was um, on December 8th, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor. Wow. Um, and, um and we know that uh, Melhorn contacted a forester, um, who's uh, Heinz May, whose job was to reforest parts of Poland, the steppe, and uh, other places. And they, they wanted to plant trees to cover up these mass graves, but also mitigate the horrendous stench of these, you know, oh, yeah. tens of thousands of people they were burying. Oh. burying. And um, there's at least one eyewitness who says that he saw. Melhorn in his SS uniform at the camp, but wow. I'm not sure if that's really confirmed, but it's not unlikely. I got two, two final questions for you here, and then I'm going to let you go. Um, first of all, thanks for doing this. I know, this, I know we were sort of... Yeah. I, sometimes I get sort of jocular talking about World War II and Nazi stuff, even as dark a period it is, because my mom was a little kid in London when the Nazis were bombing. My dad was a 16-year-old mm -hmm. in Poland when the Nazis invaded, and mm -hmm. this has been just so real in my family my whole life, so... I mean, it's obviously a very dark yeah. period, and I don't mean to make light of it if, if, I, if my tone is jocular. But a um, couple things. Um, what, uh, what ultimately became of Melhorn? Did he survive the war? Did he face any persecution or anything? 
Yeah, the, what I was able to find out about that, and there, I mean, there's a whole lot of research, more research I could do on this guy, but or someone could do, you know. <laughs> um, there was a rumor that he was executed by the Poles. Uh, they executed his boss. In fact, he was the la- it was the last public hanging in Poland, um, and uh, but apparently he escaped and went back to Germany and just resumed his career as an attorney, <laughs> and um, he died. Um, in 1968. Wow. Okay. So, um, hmm. but you know, and, and I think my, my sense is that, you know, he was just one of these guys who was able to kind of hide in the, in the crannies of administration yeah. and, and where he was responsible for a lot of this stuff. The reason his report survived is the Russians, uh, got a hold of, you know, most of the intelligence files. That's great. And I, they ended up in the hands of Stasi, and and then subsequently, when the Berlin Wall came down, this stuff began to be shared more widely. Well, I love archives. I'm so glad we've saved the National Archives here in Seattle, that they're not going oh. anywhere. And that, anyway, it's, it's obviously you and I agree about how important those written records are and how great we have access to stuff like this right here in Seattle. Um, last question. It's kind of a big question. Maybe the, maybe there's a short answer for it. How did this, Is there a way to say how Seattle fared in terms of this bigger topic that Ken Burns is looking at with the U.S. and the Holocaust? Did, did Seattle do anything extraordinary in terms of welcoming refugees or raising money or doing anything to, to sort of counter, you know, counteract the effects of the Holocaust? No, not that I'm aware of. Um, I, think, I think people uh, – one of the interesting things about the, the, the 1930s in this period is that after the war – People just seem to want to forget about it. Yeah. And that was true of both the Japanese uh, incarceration, but I think it was also true of just wanting to kind of move past. And so um, some of the people involved in this, you know, whose political ideas were, you know, pretty anathema, you know, um, were kind of given a pass. And, you know, the Northwest has always been a place where people can kind of reinvent themselves. And, yeah. And, um, I think I think there was a I think there was a, a purposeful sort of forgetting. Yeah. Um, it all happened over there. Didn't involve, you know. It didn't involve us. Yeah. Yeah. That that's um, I I can understand that. All right. All right, Knut Berger. Where can people find out more about your Crosscut stuff or your KCTS stuff? What's the best place to follow all your various projects? Best, yeah, the best way to follow is to go to crosscut.com um, and slash mossback, and <laughs> you'll find my written stuff. And you can um, and kcts9.org has um, all my episodes of uh, Mossback Northwest. So, right on. yeah. Next time we have you, I'm going to have you explain what Mossback means. But we're going to keep that as a, as a tease for next time. This is a great topic. It'll be fun. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Skip. Have a good okay. night. Bye-bye. Felix, you too. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks to Knut Berger for joining us here on Cascade of History. All right. We're going to get to our uh, second half of the show guests here in just a moment. But I want to have our little bit of um, archival audio from the late, great, Way ahead of its time, AM alternative station, KJET, went on the air in 1982, went off the air on September 23rd, 1988. Um, I have a little bit of a a thing called a 1984 presentation reel, and then we're going to hear about uh, a minute and a half or so when KJET goes off the air and a new station comes on the air with a live DJ and a very different format. So here's a little KJET montage to uh, keep you busy for the next couple minutes here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. In 1982, a new sound hit the Seattle airwaves.
a radio format so unique and progressive that it has yet to be matched. That radio station is 1590 KJET. KJET positions itself as a progressive rock station, breaking many artists who later become mainstream staples. Groups who topped the charts today were first heard on KJET. Bands like In Excess, The Bangles, Cyndi Lauper, R.E.M., and U2. And KJET stays on the cutting edge by exposing the brightest up-and-coming stars today. Terrence Trent Darby, Midnight Oil, Tracy Chapman, Ziggy Marley, and Sinead O'Connor. The jocks on the jet know their audience well. Rather than show off with lots of radio gloss and DJ non-sequiturs, KJET personalities relate to the human side of the listener in a natural, relaxed delivery laced with playful irreverence. Hotter than a burning stump, 1590 KJET, Thad Wilson here. It's just about 20 minutes before 10 o'clock. And because you, the listener, have asked, we are going to get to the bottom of this whole chicken McNuggets thing. I still contend it's a chicken's tail. But we have called the Arkansas Poultry Federation, and we have them on the line right now. Hi, uh, who am I speaking with? Judy Campbell. Hi, um, I just wondered if you could answer a question for me. I'll try. Okay, um, are you familiar with chicken McNuggets? Yes. Okay, could you tell me where the nuggets are on a chicken? Oh, you're real cute. That's funny. Judy's never that rude when I call her at home. 1590 KJET, the real rock of the 80s with the young, fresh fellows. That's Universal Trendsetter. I've had several people ask me, hey, Damon, is that about you? No, it's about somebody else. Hi, this is Mike Gibson from The Godfathers. You're listening to 1590 KJET. Hotter than a burning stump? It's everybody's favorite time of year. Not uh, because it's wet and it's Seattle and you expect it to be wet, because it's Friday. That's, that's the favorite time of year. Jim Keller in the pilot seat to tell you how you can spend your time, your money, and get your ears filled with music in the next couple months. The KJET concert calendar. KJET maintains high visibility in the marketplace by presenting concert and club nights for their audience. Promotions like the Frequent Flyer Program, a series of concerts featuring Jet City musicians keeps KJET on top of the local music scene. The Put Me on the Guest List Scam gives listeners the opportunity to get free tickets and passes to local theater, cinema, art, and sporting events. And KJET puts their money where their music is by sponsoring concerts by national and international artists played on the station. By keeping in touch with the needs of its listeners, KJET has garnered a fiercely loyal following. In a recent survey of all the people listening KJET as their first choice in radio, over 35% listed no other choice. Waves of public support for the JET have won them two 1988 Northwest Area Music Association Awards, Best Radio Station and Best Disc Jockey beating out several other competitors who actually placed higher in the Arbitron ratings. Hi, this is Charles Cross, editor of The Rocket Magazine, and you're listening to the Northwest Area Music Awards Rocky Award winner for Radio Station of the Year for 1988, 1590 KJET, Seattle. With its fresh, innovative programming, bold new artists, and entertaining personalities, KJET is the new music market leader. No other radio station in Seattle can boast such audience response or such a singular market niche. Destroy one country station and no one will notice. 
bankrupt a top 40 station, and another will spring up as if by magic, just as poppy and predictable. But this unmistakable sound is Radio Now for the Future, KJET. This is KQULCF, Cool Radio, AM 1590. Good afternoon, everyone. It's Danny Holiday with the Roots of Rock and Roll on Cool Radio, AM 1590. Let's go! Woo! Yes, it still brings a tear to my eye to hear the old, uh, the old K-Jet format uh, going away with, um, I think that's, they might be giants. Put your hand inside the puppet head, and then um, you hear uh, the late Danny Holliday, uh, wonderful disc jockey around these parts for decades doing uh, oldies there, um, when it became KQUL. Boy, what a, what a slap in the face that was to go from uh, way ahead of its time, new wave, alternative music, to... Uh, Little Richard, that was, I mean, I remember, I was, anyway, that's long, long story we'll tell some other night about that specific day back on September 23rd, 1988, and I misspoke that piece that began um, our little recorded segment, that actually was from 1988, so about May of 88, I think is when that little promo reel is from, and then four months later, the station goes off the air, so... Radio will always break your heart eventually. That's that's the lesson we take from uh, from listening to old KJET tapes like that. And Mike Fuller, who does a show on Saturday nights on Space 101, he plays all the great music that he used to play on KJET all the time that I used to tune in on the AM radio on my Ford Pinto, and it sounded so good, that one speaker, um, mono, it was great. Anyway, all right, our, uh, I'm going to bring our guests on right now. Potentially we'll oh, our guests there, can you guys hear me? Hello? Yeah. Oh, there you are, I catch you guys talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we were hey, talking we're, about the civic election. Hey, we're trying to do a radio show here. What are you guys doing having a phone conversation? Um, yeah, we sorry. have a couple of great guests from uh, north of the 40, uh, 49th parallel. We've got um, John Mackey, who's been a writer for the Vancouver Sun since 1984, and John Atkin, a civic historian and guide to uh, all things historic in the terminal city of Vancouver, B.C., um, I'm really glad to have you guys on because the whole point of the show was to get outside Seattle and Washington and just do history around the whole Northwest. And that means, in my mind, the old Oregon country, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and the British Columbia. So you guys are our first international guests. So congratulations. We'll have some lovely gifts we'll send you for being on the show tonight. So, Excellent. Um, Thank you. The reason I wanted to talk to you uh, both We is, want back Vancouver, uh, Washington, okay? Yeah, it's <laughs> very confusing. That always confuses people, that whole Vancouver thing. And I remember looking, I saw an old map that had... Um, it had Mount, Mount Rainier on there twice, like Mount Rainier in Washington and Oregon. It reminded me of having two Vancouver's to have two Mount Rainier's. Very confusing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, 
Um, enough, enough about me, but um, the reason I wanted to have you guys on was because, well, number one, I love Vancouver. I haven't been there for a couple of years. I think the last time I was there, I took the train. It was probably 2018. I remember um, we had poutine at the A&W in the train station there in Vancouver. It's, yep. it, it's the most sincere poutine you can find in Canada. It's not, there's no, uh, it doesn't have any sort of anything false. It's all very real. But, um, so it's, it's been a few years. But I love, used to love walking on Hastings Street and looking at the neon signs. And I think I remember reading somewhere that Vancouver has more neon or had more neon than just about any other city in North America. Is that, what is it with Vancouver, B.C. and neon? Who wants to take that question? Well, that's a simple one. Uh, it, it's like Seattle. It's a rainforest up here. And uh, uh, neon and uh, works well in the rain. And so the, the statistic that everyone quotes is in 1953, uh, the sign industry uh, here was uh, touting the success of the uh, neon sign business, and somebody went out and counted and found that there were 19,000 neon <laughs> signs just within Vancouver. <laughs> and that meant that there was one sign for every 18 <laughs> residents. <laughs> and that was not anything outside of Vancouver within the, say, greater Vancouver area. That was just Vancouver itself, 19,000. Wow. What a yeah. great statistic. You know, yeah. here in Seattle, there's there's a handful of neon signs that stand out as, like, the big ones, the ones that everybody knows. And some of them are in disrepair. Some have gone mm -hmm. away. I mean, we had the um, the PI Globe from the newspaper is pretty beat up these days. It's down on the yeah. waterfront, it, several blocks from where it originally was located. Um, the old Bardall oil additive sign up in Ballard, which is also yeah. kind of that's the only neon sign that has its own sound. You can hear the, the um, solenoids clicking on and off as it runs through its various animations. Ah, okay. And then there's the, uh, the, the elephant car wash, which has been taken away, and it's being restored by the Museum of History and Industry. Good. Those are, that is a great one. Actually, yeah. I love that one. Yeah, but it's yeah. going to be inside the museum. So anyway, I mean, that's, that's a whole other debate. But are there, are, there, are there a handful of signs, that, maybe not just on Hastings, but in Vancouver in general, that are kind of the big, the big three or the big... I don't know, big three or five. Is, is there are there signs like that that really stand out just right off the top oh. of your head? Oh. Yeah, there's a few on Hastings, right, John? There would be the yeah. Save on Meat sign, which is a <laughs> which has a flying pig, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The pig's up at the top, and what he's got is he's holding a dollar coin, and then the arm goes up and down. <laughs> he's waving that, and then there's another pig at the bottom, and it's done in pink neon, nice. and it also rotates. Um, and it was restored a few years ago. Yeah. Okay, great. So that one's a really great one. We have... Um, the Ovaltine. Oh, yeah, oh, the Ovaltine is amazing. It's a proper, uh, intact 1948 uh, cafe. Uh, long counter, stools, booths, mirrors, the whole bit. And the walls are fur panels that are tobacco stained. Yeah. <laughs> so you could not... You know, 70 years of smokers, yeah. you couldn't replicate that. The movies would spend a million dollars trying to replicate yes. that. It's, a, no. it's, it's cool. It's, it's, it's sort of Vancouver's version of the spar, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Only without being fixed up. Now, the Ovaltine, now, here in the States, Ovaltine has always been this powdered drink, like a malted yeah. beverage or yeah. chocolate beverage. But did Canada have some special thing where there was actually a chain of Ovaltine cafes? No. Is there? No, no, it, just one. This was just the one-off. How did they get just one cafe named after this big national brand? We have been asking that question. <laughs> Somebody was drunk and actually decided that Ovaltine would make a good name for a cafe. Yeah. Do they actually serve Ovaltine at the Ovaltine Cafe? Oh, yes. 
They do. Okay. Yeah, okay. they do. <laughs> um, so what's amazing about the, uh, the old scene is it's got two different eras of signs. It's got the original uh, window sign, which has the oval team on a metal frame, but it's framed by the original pink and green uh, surrounds, so a very Art Deco-ish-like surround. And so that dates from when the cafe opened. And then wow. a couple years later, oh, and they also have a fascia sign in script, um, over the door kind of thing. And then they've got a projecting sign, which is this abstract arrow that bends out towards the street and then points at the entrance, and it's got a Ovaltine, it says Ovaltine on, and then it has this big target at the top that flashes from the inner ring out to the outer ring and then back in again. That's so cool. I love it's it. A, it's a really great sign, and that all dates from, from the 1940s. Yeah, the moving signs are really the cool ones, right? The ones where uh, the Vancouver Sun, it, this hasn't been around since the 60s, but the Sun used to have a, a thing they called the Vancouver Sun Tower. It was like a, a domed building, uh, I don't know, 16 stories. At uh, on Pender Street, and at the top they had neon, red neon, and <laughs> said the sun. And then out the side they had three lightning bolts yeah. flashed wow. on and off. Oh, right? that's so cool! It was. I mean, if I ever win the lottery, I'm going to rebuild it. Okay, <laughs> is, is that tower well, still there? Yeah, the, oh, the tower's still there. And, yeah, yeah. And, but, but the newspaper's long gone from that tower. Oh yeah, they moved out in 1965. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I saw a picture of that actual sign not too long ago. I hadn't I had never seen it before. So, yeah. um, now is there something about Hastings that I mean, because there's a couple other favorites along there. I mean, one of my all-time favorites is the only, the seafood restaurant. Yeah, which sadly, unfortunately, is gone. Oh. Uh, and, but, and the sign then, perversely, has made its way to a collection somewhere in the States. No, no, that's not right. That, no? It, not really? no, 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 no. Okay. No, what, what, what's happened is uh, the, only, <laughs> the only itself, so what happened is Hastings Street is really struggling. Uh, between Carroll Street and, uh, I guess, Gore Street, there's three blocks. Uh, it, there's a tent city there now. Has been there all summer, yeah. but it's been, it, it's been really, it's it's been Vancouver's you know skid road for many years. But yeah. but it's actually many would argue it's you know the the current drug crisis has really uh, seen it really spiral downhill, and yeah, it's affected Chinatown, which is next door. Is, is Hastings uh, Hastings considered the downtown east side? Yeah, yeah. The, Hastings is the downtown. It is downtown. Downtown. Vancouver's okay. original downtown. Okay. So so uh, so uh, and you know and and. So that's why you have a whole bunch of, you know, hotels that were probably re- built as nice hotels, and now they're kind of skid road hotels, right. you know, what we call the single-room occupancy hotels, SRO hotels. And they had, the, and that dated, you know, back in the day of neons, uh, when neon was really happening. So Hastings had a lot of the city's main neon signs, right, like John? Yeah, and, and, yeah. Hastings, and from 1907 onwards, Hastings Street was the main streetcars lying um, in the city, so they... They ran all the major streetcars up there, so then it became the major bus route. And at its far end, out in the city of Burnaby, uh, it then turns into Highway 7. So it was one of the main routes in and out of town as well. So that's why you had these sort of huge, spectacular um, signs that ran the entire height of the building. Anyway, but the only, getting back to the only sign, so the only was a seafood-only cafe. Upstairs was some, this place called the Don't Argue, originally. So as the Don't Argue, which had, which had the greatest logo in the history of the world. It was a guy punching a guy in the face, right? <laughs> don't Argue. Don't Argue. Yeah, Con- it was this guy, Con Jones, right? He was a nice. promoter and, and stuff. Well, the, the subtext on that one was uh, Don't Argue, punch guy face. 
Conjon sells the precious tobacco. Yeah. Oh, nice. That was, yeah, okay. that I'll, I'll send you the, 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 the thing. It's fantastic. Oh, the logo is just the best. But, no, so anyway, they only started, I think there's been a, a, a seafood joint there since, like, whatever, 1914 or whatever. But the, the sign, I think, uh, it's the 40s, right, John? Yeah. 50s? Yeah. 1940s. It's a late yeah. 1940s sign. It had light bulbs, red and yellow light bulbs out on the outer ring, and then a brilliant orange uh, seahorse and a really great painted can. It was a, a really nice piece of work. So, so what happened was Portland Hotel was a, a, a non-profit here. They were going to reopen the only, which had closed, uh, and uh, as a social enterprise thing with you know people from the downtown east that work in there. The government uh, went after the people who ran the Portland. So that and then yeah, BC Housing took it over and this basically let the building rot. And mm-hmm. uh, BC Housing's government organization. And then, uh, but while they were actually. Uh, working on it, the, the Portland sort of absconded with the sign, yeah. uh, which the family still owned, uh, well, or Neon Products owned, somebody owned. But anyway, they, and Neon Products rebuilt it. And then they installed it back, and it was just sitting there. And then Neon Products offered it back to the family. And so it's sitting in a, uh, in a, uh, a garage of one of the family members. Wow. Isn't there a law against that kind of stuff in Canada? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, but it... it it is the greatest sign of all time, right? It, it, it's, it's fantastic. And I remember having fish and chips there in the 80s, and the fish and chips were really good. They oh, were... it, it was a really great place. I used to eat there all the time because it had a long counter, sort of snaky counter, yeah. and it only had two booths, and <laughs> clam, clam chowder, fish and chips, and, and all the bread you could eat. Nice. But, but no, no Ovaltine, though. I uh, knew Ovaltine at that uh, You had to go across the street, down the street, to get the Ovaltine, the Ovaltine yeah. Cafe. Yeah. There, was, there was also the Blue Eagle was another big one in those days. Well, the, the Blue yeah. Eagle was an amazing place as well as then. It was right next door to the uh, San Francisco. Uh, then there was down the street the Golden Cup. Uh, There's a whole raft of these coffee shops and, and things along the street as well. And a lot of them were owned by the Pantages family, right? Oh, by, yeah. Uh, by, uh, by, uh, so there was... Uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, who's Peter, Pantages? Peter Pantages. Peter Pantages, yeah. yeah. But but the guy in Seattle, the guy started the Pantages Theater yeah. thing in Seattle. Considine, but, but wasn't he, it? He, he had a cousin that, uh, that came up to Vancouver and went, ran the Vancouver wing of the Pantages thing, and they're, uh, they're still here. There's a, yeah. there's a bunch of Pantages. He, uh, Tony Pantages just lives a couple of feet from me here. Yeah. yeah. We, had, we had the first Pantages Theater built outside of uh, Seattle, uh, and up until its demolition, it was the oldest surviving Fantasia's and vaudeville interior um, intact theater oh. in Canada. I, I love the connections between Seattle and Vancouver. I mean, that sort of almost in spite of the, nas- the international border, they, mm-hmm. they go you know back to the 19th century, obviously. But it's just sort of, you know, when I last time I was in Vancouver, and every time I go to Vancouver, it sort of feels like a slightly more cosmopolitan version of Seattle. Like there's a little bit more um, international diversity of residents and visitors, yep. and you know the the money with the Queen on it and stuff. I mean, it's yeah, it's just yeah. it's God save the Queen. Yeah, oh uh, yeah, God save the King now. But but with neon, neon's you yeah. know neon's universal. And why is it that there's here's there's three of us here on the radio late on a Sunday night, and we're all drooling over these exciting neon signs? What is it about neon signs that just literally pierce through the darkness or pierce through the memory and sort of it, grab you like that? It is one of the best sources of light. What I think one of the things that really makes neon work is that it is a full spectrum light source. So you know you stand under say a yellow sodium street light, and it robs you of all your color. You know, you're, you're suddenly your lovely jacket looks 
gray, and there's no color. You stand under a neon sign, you get all that color wash on the sidewalk and on the building, but, but every other color is still there. And so it becomes this really great light that um, the color wash just on the street, and then of course if it rains, it's even better. Oh yeah. Um, so there's that aspect of it, um, and it's also just a friend. I don't know how to figure uh, or make it any better than it's just a friendly light source as well. Yeah, it's and, very it's very inviting. I agree. It's where you yeah. see it, and it sort of it makes you feel like you know whether it's the only or the Ovaltine you know cafe. It's like you sort of feel yeah. like you're welcome there, and that's maybe that's maybe that's really yeah. obvious. And yeah, yeah. So my uh, very good friend and colleague and uh, former bus driver who now works for the Transit Museum Society, Angus McIntyre, uh, when we did the exhibit uh, City Lights at the Vancouver Museum back in 2000, we took their collection of neon signs and curated this great exhibit. And then Angus and I did uh, 29 neon bus tours <laughs> of, of the city. We thought we'd do like four of them and that would be it. But we ran these things long after the exhibit uh, disappeared. But we used to purposely pull up in front of our famous sign is Helen uh, out in Burnaby. It's a girl on a swing that swings wow. over the sidewalk. It was a children's wear uh, shop. So we used to get people off the bus and go and stand under these things, and people were just like, oh, wow, because the color and the movement and, and that type of thing. And so that's, I think, what neon is. You love standing around it. That's, and that's the thing I actually did years ago. Um, historic Seattle, uh, Larry Kreisman. Yeah, I know Larry. Well, Larry said, gee, I wish we had enough neon in Seattle to do a tour, and I went, Oh my goodness! You guys, tons of stuff. You got more than Vancouver, actually. So the next yeah. thing, <laughs> next thing you know, I'm down in Seattle with a bus with historic Seattle members on, giving a tour of Neon in Seattle, and I did the same thing. Got them off the bus as much as I could to stand under stuff and, and that type of thing. What so, year? What year were you doing tours for historic Seattle for Neon tours? Oh my! Uh, that was many years ago. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. okay <laughs> but, that's, yeah. But, uh, but I also think the thing about neon is that it's kind of a people's art, right? Yeah. It's not like a highbrow art, but it's yeah. really playful. And the Helen sign, you know, it, it, it's just kind of really simple, but it's just incredibly cool, this, yeah. this little girl swinging back and forth, yeah. right? And, uh, and, you know, and the, the Smiling Buddha, which is an old uh, 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 nightclub on Hastings, the, the sign is now at the Vancouver Museum, and the, 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 is, is belly ripples. Right? Nice. The Buddha, B- yeah. Buddha's belly ripples. It's just That's fantastic. cool. Now, yeah. I worked for the museum in Seattle here, Museum of History and Industry. I was the deputy director there for about mm. seven years, and we collected a lot of neon, um, kind of, you know, not super high-end stuff, but like the mm-hmm. Warshall's um, hardware sign, um, an interior sign of a like a, a painted portrait of a boxing ring with a square of neon around it from the old Turf restaurant, which was kind of yeah. like yeah. the um, like a kind of like an Ovaltine Cafe kind of place. I mean, we we did a couple of neon bus tours with a guy named Jay Blazik, who ran a company called Western Neon that did all the oh, restoration, yeah. well, like of this uh, Rainier uh-huh. R and stuff. Yeah, well, he yeah. he was that was the best part was he was on our our oh, bus. Oh, great! Yeah. Jay's a great guy. Yeah, I think he lives in New Zealand now. Really? Yeah, they seriously. have neon in New Zealand. I assume they must. I assume they, if they didn't before, they do now. <laughs> wow. Well, the big R, I have to say, the big R is one of the great things about Seattle. Yeah. When it used to be on the on the, the Rainier sign when you did drive down to 
drive past that place. I just loved that thing. Yep. It, it's funny. It becomes like a, uh, uh, it's how you figure out where you are. Right? Oh, yeah, it's navigation. Absolutely. Yeah, it's navigation. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, organic it's, navigation. Well, It's like, uh, forget about the stars. We have neon. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. we're running, hitting, hitting up the end of the hour here on Cascade of History, and it's been great talking to you guys. I hope we can do it again sometime. I want to ask you about um, neon museums. I, me- I remember that exhibit. I didn't make it that exhibit 22 mm. years ago, but there's an, uh, there is a museum down in, I think it's the Dalles, Oregon now, where a yeah. guy that I went to yeah. high school with has yeah. assembled the neon collection that he's been putting together for the last 35 years. That's I have yet to fun. make it down there as well, a guy named um, Dave that's, Benko. That's, that's on my bucket list. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one of the things you should put on your list is uh, probably, let's say, early next year, we've got our former main post office building right in the middle of downtown. I know it. And it's uh, now been redeveloped. It's going to be Amazon and a whole bunch of other folks in a revamped building, but it's now called the Post. And the current idea around food is to build a huge food hall with sort of higher end food outlets and things, but what they've inked is a deal with the Vancouver Museum where the museum's collection of signs are going to be installed as a permanent exhibit in the food hall. Very nice, very nice. So a good friend of mine, Cameron uh, Klo, who runs Concept Neon, has been doing all of the restoration work, and tons of signs that couldn't fit into the museum are now going to be on permanent display, so that's going to be... That's going to knock you socks off. The best example of that is there used to be this chain of restaurants called the Aristocratic, and they had Risty, who was a guy in a tuxedo with a, with a top hat, right? Yep. A famous thing. Was it Granville and, and Broadway? You always knew you were Granville and Broadway because you saw this neon sign, Very right? Nice. A red script. And then when it was, I did a story of it closed a few years ago, so I did a story on it and, and the closing night. And uh, so I said to the people who owned it, what are you going to do with it? And they said, oh, they, with the neon sign, and they said, we're going to trash it. So I phoned at the Vancouver Museum, yeah. and and the director Jones said, "Well, it's it's nothing much, right? She, she wasn't from Vancouver originally, <laughs> Jones. It, it's not that exist." So what I did was this is my, but the thing that I'm most proud of in my history at the Vancouver Sun. So I phoned up all, everybody I know, all the heritage people I know, and I said, "Phone Joan right now yeah. and get the uh, aristocratic sign saved." And they did, and she Very saved nice. it. Thanks. Way to go, Joan. But it's too big to get into the bloody museum. <laughs> oh, shoot. Because <laughs> so, it's but, like but you know, cool, 15 feet high. Yeah. Yeah. But the cool thing was that was right at the time that we were doing the exhibit. And so what we did, I talked to the uh, Joan, the curator, but also to the exhibition designer, and we hung the sign on the outside of the museum. Very nice. And everyone thought there was a restaurant in the museum. Um, <laughs> but the coolest thing, if I might stretch this is just a hair. I, the aristocratic yeah. sign, Aristi is in a painted piece of glass, and when it was down in the yards, I was looking at it a couple months ago and realized everyone's asking, what's this outline? The aristocratic sold the very original Kentucky Fried Chicken. They had the license for it in Vancouver, and originally it was a painted portrait of Colonel Sanders. Very nice. On that note, I have to cut you guys off. Okay. We're hitting the top of the hour, but um, right. John Atkin okay. and John Mankey, thanks for talking Vancouver, BC Neon with me here on Cascade of History. Uh, appreciate it. We'll talk to you guys soon, okay? All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. I'm Felix Bunnell. This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM Magnuson Park, and this has been Cascade of History. Yeah.
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell. Yeah.